Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Jason Harrow. In today's episode, I'll be speaking about election law at the Supreme Court with Professor Rick Hazen. Rick holds the William H. Hannon Distinguished Professor of Law Chair at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, but is perhaps more familiar to this audience as the founder of the Election Law Blog. So, Rick, thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. So, let's jump right in, and uh, let's start off with the most recent of the Supreme Court's election decision, uh, this per curiam decision in Purcell against Gonzalez that they uh, handed down last month. So, if you could just start off, tell us a little bit about the underlying issues there, and then uh, kind of where it fits in in the Supreme Court's election administration jurisprudence. Well, uh, the, uh, what the court uh, did last month, just before the election, was to reverse the decision of the Ninth Circuit, uh, which itself reversed the decision of the District Court. And all of this stems from Arizona's new voter identification law. Uh, this voter identification law was put into place uh, by a voter initiative called Proposition 200, which was part of an anti-illegal immigration initiative. And uh, it required that uh, voters who show up at the polls provide either a photo ID or two other forms of ID with their address on them, and that address has to match their registration address. Uh, this was challenged as, uh, among other things, uh, violating uh, the Equal Protection Clause because it's harder for some people to be able to get these IDs than others. Uh, the district court refused to preliminarily enjoin the use of the ID program in the November election. The Ninth Circuit, uh, in, a, in an order without any explanation, reversed that and put the ID law on hold. And then in response, the Supreme Court uh, issued an opinion that was uh, procedurally very unusual, and this will be, I think, of interest for SCOTUS blog listeners, that um, this was initially a stay motion made to uh, Justice Kennedy to stay the Ninth Circuit's order mm -hmm. by reinstating what happened in the district court. Uh, Justice Kennedy referred it to the whole court. The whole court treated it as a petition for cert, granted cert, and without oral argument issued a six-page opinion. Uh, so very unusual. And the opinion basically said, uh, that courts should not lightly intervene in uh, upcoming elections, changing the rules just before the election, uh, sending a signal to lower courts to uh, watch out uh, uh, for the, these kinds of last-minute uh, changes, and that uh, if a court's going to intervene, it better give some good reasons. Ninth Circuit didn't give any reasons. And most curiously, uh, in the discussion along the way of the interests on both sides, uh, the court said that uh, one of the things that needs to be balanced is the feeling of disenfranchisement that people might have if they know they're voting in an election where there's a possibility of voter fraud. And this uh, was uh, really, uh, I think, out of left field without uh, any kind of empirical uh, backup that, that this is a real problem, that people suffer this kind of feeling, or, or uh, any discussion of how this feeling should be balanced against a real disenfranchisement that could come from uh, the implementation of one of these voter ID laws. So, so how does that fit uh, in the broader picture of we have these two new justices, and uh, can we tell anything about where they're headed in terms of actually administering elections, or, or is it too brief and, and it's hard to tell from a per curiam decision? Yeah, well, I should back up for a second and say that the, the, the first uh, and only time that the Supreme Court really issued an opinion on the nuts and bolts of election processes, as opposed to questions like, campaign financing or partisan gerrymandering or the meaning of the Voting Rights Act, but on the real nuts and bolts of how you count votes and cast votes was the Bush versus Gore case, which continues to um, be a, uh, a controversial decision among those uh, who feel strongly that it was either rightly or wrongly decided. Uh, since Bush versus Gore, until the Purcell case, the Supreme Court has uh, shied away from 
uh, hearing any election administration cases, even though they were brought. And in fact, even in other cases where it would have been appropriate to cite Bush versus Gore, the case hasn't been cited by any justice for any proposition. The courts seem to be walking very gingerly around the whole issue of election administration. Uh, this uh, Purcell opinion was uh, a procurium opinion. Uh, justice Stevens issued a separate concurrence where he said, well, this is a good thing because now we'll be able to take evidence and figure out if there really are problems with the way elections are administered. Uh, but I don't think that uh, it tells us much about where Justice Alito uh, or Chief Justice Roberts stands on these kinds of issues because it was this unanimous opinion. And you know, it may be that I'm reading more into it than is there. And it's you know the fact that all the justices agreed. Maybe it's not as controversial as I seem to think it is. But I can say that in the week or so after the opinion was issued, before uh, the election, uh, the case had already been cited a couple of times by uh, appellate courts in reversing district court orders that had come to change election rules at the last minute. So it already seems to be having some effect of discouraging uh, pre-election rulings, which for reasons we probably don't have time to get into here, but which I've written about in a Washington and Lee Law Review article that's available on my blog. Uh, I think it's better actually to decide issues before an election than after if it's possible to do so, so that you don't inject the courts into the uh, deciding who the winner and loser are in a close election. Mm, right. Um, so now if we could turn to uh, issues that the Supreme Court does weigh in on more often in election law, um, thinking specifically of campaign finance reform first. Um, so you've written on your blog, you've been following closely a series of lower court decisions that you say are, are fairly inevitable, looking really good to make it up to the court uh, fairly soon. And, and I believe the most prominent one is another round in the Massachusetts Citizens for Life. Yeah, it's not the Massachusetts Citizens for Life. This one's the Wisconsin Right to Life. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, similar kind of group, uh, raising uh, parallel, some parallel issues to the Massachusetts Citizens for Life case. But th this is a case that... Um, uh, challenges a provision of the McCain-Feingold Law, or BICRA, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. This case uh, is before a three-judge court, and by a special uh, statutory rule contained within BICRA, uh, there's a direct appeal to the Supreme Court of constitutional questions. And uh, the case, as I said, already uh, went to a three-judge court, went to the Supreme Court. Uh, the day before, I believe the day before Justice Alito was sworn in, the court issued an opinion, uh, Justice, I think it was Justice O'Connor's last day, uh, another procurium opinion which basically punted on the issue, sent it back to the three-judge court where it sits now and uh, it's on its way back. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, the last time was uh, as the court was really in transition and the court didn't want to face the issues. I think when this case gets back to the Supreme Court, it's going to be a very important case. At issue is uh, this uh, question of what counts as election-related speech that can be regulated and what counts as issue speech that's subject to less regulation. So to give uh, a minute of background, um, one of the most uh, important and controversial parts of the BICRA, of the McCain-Feingold Law, changed how election-related advertising was uh, defined. Uh, and uh, this definition is relevant in two ways. One, it require, when something is considered election-related, there has to be disclosure by everyone who engages in it. And also corporations and unions, uh, to the extent that it's election-related, cannot uh, use corporate or union treasury funds to pay for the ads. They have to set up a separate political action committee or PAC. And so um, before McCain-Feingold, uh, thanks to the Supreme Court's opinion in Buckley versus Vallejo, the only thing that counted as election-related speech 
was advertising that expressly advocated the election or defeat of a candidate for office, such as um, vote for Smith or vote against Jones. What Bicker did is that it said, if you run a TV or radio ad within 60 days of an election and you um, uh, uh, refer to a candidate for office and you put it on TV or radio in a place where, where this person is running for office, that counts as an election-related ad. This was challenged as overbroad, uh, and uh, the Supreme Court rejected the overbreath challenge in the McConnell case. So that's the background. Mm -hmm. In Massachusetts, uh, now I'm saying that, in Wisconsin right to life, the um, challenge was that uh, th that rule uh, upholding, uh, the ruling in McConnell upholding the, this bright line test for what's election related, uh, uh, upholding this constitutional, that rule is subject still to as applied challenges. So if you can actually prove that an ad is issue related rather than election related, then it should not be subject to these limits, meaning you can spend unlimited corporate funds. So uh, the Wisconsin Right to Life wanted to run an ad in Wisconsin uh, about the filibuster going on in the Senate, filibuster of judicial nominees, and they referred to both Senator Feingold, who was up for re-election, and Senator Cole, who was not up for re-election, and basically told them what position they should take on uh, this um, uh, uh, question of filibustering. And, uh, if you apply the new bright line test from Bikra, this counts as an election-related advertising. It was put on TV. It referred to Feingold, who was running for election, and it reached 50,000 people. Uh, and so the challenge was, no, this, this should be subject to an exemption. And the Supreme Court, the first time around, said, the district court got it wrong in thinking that we decided this issue in McConnell. We didn't, so think about it again. And even if there is to be these as-applied exemptions, uh, there's still the open question as to whether or not uh, they apply to this ad. Maybe this ad really is election-related. And so that's the question that's posing, uh, being posed before the uh, three-judge court now, and we'll be back at the Supreme Court, perhaps this term, perhaps next term. And, and how uh, is the change in membership, do you think, going to uh, affect that? As, is Justice Kennedy really in the center of this one, uh, as, uh, as he is in so many areas? Or is, could Justice Roberts or Alito maybe be a little surprising on this one? Well, you know, the, the only piece of evidence we really have as to where the new court's going to go on questions of campaign finance comes in the case that the court decided in June, the Randall versus Sorrell case, which was a challenge to Vermont's campaign contribution limits. And the court struck down the Vermont limits as, as too low, first time the court had ever struck down a campaign contribution limit in a candidate election. And the court split into three camps. Uh, Justice Kennedy does not appear to be the swing vote in this area, although he is in many other election law areas. There are three justices who basically uh, take a very deregulationist position. Uh, Scalia and Thomas, the most deregulationist, followed by Kennedy. There are three justices who are very deferential. Uh, that is uh, uh, Justices Stevens, Ginsburg, and Souter. And we had this plurality in the middle, these three judges, uh, judge, Justices um, Breyer, Alito, and Chief Justice Roberts. And they issued this uh, opinion with a multi-part test uh, to try and figure out when a contribution, uh, campaign contribution limit is so low as to be unconstitutional. Uh, but Justice Alito separately concurred and said, by the way, um, if someone brings a, a challenge to Buckley, this is the main Supreme Court case upholding campaign contribution limits and striking down uh, campaign expenditure limits, if someone brings a challenge to that, I'd be willing to listen. And so. Uh, that and the narrowness of the plurality holding in the uh, Randall case, the Breyer-Alito-Roberts uh, opinion, 
makes me think that the court uh, is moving away from the deference that it's shown in the McConnell case and in some other cases, and perhaps towards towards the deregulationist position. Uh, I think MCFL, uh, uh, I'll say that again, I, I think Wisconsin Right to Life, WRTL, is a case that is um, probably going to be the first chance we're going to get to see how far the court's going to move towards deregulation. It could be that Justice Alito and even Chief Justice Roberts moves into this deregulationist camp, which would give five justices uh, who might be willing to strike down more campaign finance laws as violating uh, the First Amendment. Uh, but I, I, from, the, from the first Roberts uh, um, court opinion, the Randall case, I think the signs are pointing in that way, but it's a, it's a little early to tell. Mm -hmm. So really quickly, as, as a last part to this campaign finance section, could we see any changes from the Supreme Court that could really affect the 2008 presidential election, or are we looking at a longer time horizon for this one? Oh, well, I think we certainly could if, for example, in the Wisconsin Rights to Life case, uh, we see um, the court open up this, uh, reopen up this question of what counts as election-related speech and what's issue speech. You could see a lot more corporate and union spending uh, in these elections using general treasury funds, which could, in fact, have an uh, impact on the presidential election. And of course, um, there could be other cases that come up as well in the interim uh, challenging various provisions of the federal law that have not yet been challenged. Right, right. So, so uh, last topic for today, at least. Um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, you've also highlighted a few cases um, that look headed to the Supreme Court in this area. Um, what are those? And uh, what, what is, can you just briefly describe Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act? Sure. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is a temporary provision of the act that, that requires certain uh, jurisdictions, mostly in the South, with the history of discrimination, uh, prohibits them from making any changes in their voting rules without first getting preclearance from the Justice Department uh, or from a three-judge court. Uh, are, uh, and they have to show that the change won't make the position of minority worse. Uh, this provision uh, uh, was subject to expiration this uh, coming year, 2007, but this past summer Congress renewed it for another 25 years. And it renewed it without making any real substantive changes to the law. And there's a real question as to whether or not uh, the law uh, as reenacted uh, would be upheld as uh, a permissible exercise of congressional power to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments. That's a very complex area of law. Uh, the case here uh, from the Supreme Court that, uh, that probably uh, uh, applies the most is, uh, is the Bernie case, which struck down the Religious Freedom Reformation Act uh, application to states on grounds that there wasn't enough proof that the states were engaging in unconstitutional conduct and that the congressional remedy for these RIFRA violations was not congruent and proportional to the uh, amount of state discrimination. And so the issue that, uh, that arises from the uh, renewal of, the, of Section 5 is the question of whether or not Section 5 now, with discrimination, uh, at least overt discrimination in the South, uh, uh, seriously diminished from where it was in the 1960s, is there enough evidence, or are we going to apply a different test, is there a different basis for saying that Section 5 remains constitutional? And there's a recent case that's been filed arguing that Section 5 is not no longer constitutional on these grounds. Uh, the case is the, uh, uh, the Northwest Austin Municipal Utility District Number 1 uh, case uh, versus Gonzalez, the uh, Alberto Gonzalez, the uh, Attorney General. I'm calling it Namudno, just to keep it short. And that's a case that's just been filed before a three-judge court, 
I think within the next two or three years, that's the case. There's also direct appeals to the Supreme Court. That's the case that uh, we definitely want to keep an eye on. Okay, absolutely. Well, I uh, really appreciate your coming on to talk to us about election law, Rick. And uh, there's many more issues, I'm sure, that will come up with this new court. And we'll have to talk again. Thank you for inviting me.